the, uh, the Baal Shem Tov one year, about a week before Rosh Hashanah. Twelve. He uh, approached his student, Rabbi Ze'ev Wolf Kitsis, great tzaddik in his own right, and he notified him that unlike every year when the Baal Shem Tov himself takes the honor of blowing shofar, this year it's going to be you, Rabbi Zev. You're going to be in charge of blowing the shofar on behalf of our entire community. I understand what kind of awesome responsibility that is in front of the Baal Shem Tov himself to blow, to blow the shofar. He says, Rebbe, what, you know, who am I? He says, that's why I'm giving you advance notice. I want you to study all the deep Kabbalistic intentions behind the blowing of the shofar so that you become familiar with what it is that you're accomplishing with each sound and different levels of reality, different chambers of the soul. Shofar is, uh, is huge, it's cosmic. And I want you to, uh, to really be prepared for this. And you're gonna be, on behalf of the entire congregation and really on behalf of the entire Jewish people, blowing the shofar for us all and crowning Hashem as king. So he took to the task, he right away pulled out all the Kabbalistic books, the Zohar and the Eitz Chaim and the Arizal's writings and applied himself to uh, understanding the deep meaning of every note and, and to keep reference. He made a paper with bullet points of the different, uh, what's called kavanot, the different intentions that the shofar is supposed to offer. And he figured on Rosh Hashanah morning, he'll have it with him right there and it'll be a reference. He'll blow the shofar and he could look at it and see what it is. It's the day of the Holy New Year. Shul is packed from wall to wall. Everyone's draped in their talits. The prayer is climbing. Shachrit's getting more intense and the Baal Shem Tov is, is leading the services. And then the climax. It's time for the shofar to be blown. Rabbi Ze'eva sends the bima with his shofar. And uh, he's all ready to make the blessings and to sound the holy sounds takes a look around the crowd, the Baal Shem Tov is in the corner, his face is aflame. He's in a different world, completely transcending the experiences of the physical. And he looks around at the crowd, everyone is engaged, everyone is ready, and it's time. Picks up the chauffeur to his lips, just for a last minute security, sticks his hand in his pocket to pull out his paper, and lo and behold, his pocket is empty. He lost that paper with all of the intentions. He remembered putting it in that morning, but, but it, it's completely lost. And uh, takes a look at the Baal Shem Tov now. What am I going to do? I got nothing. I'm supposed to blow this lofty spiritual shofar, and now I got completely empty-handed. His eyes filled with tears. He began to cry. and He, he was berating himself for what he did, and, and uh, with no choice. The Baal Shem Tov's waiting, and the shul is waiting, so he made the blessings and he sounded the shofar and he couldn't even look at the Baal Shem Tov afterwards. He just went back to his place and the davening continued. And at the end of the davening, as everyone's walking out of shul, Baal Shem Tov runs over to Rabbi Zev. He says, Good Yom Tif, Rabbi Zev! With this broad smile and Rabbi Zev says, Good Yom Tif, Rabbi. What, what? He says, What a shofar blowing we had today. He says, Rabbi, I... Uh, I lost the whole thing. I lost the, the paper. It was nothing. It was a simpleton. Boshemtov said, In heaven, there are many chambers and many rooms. And there are many keys that are required to get into each room. But then there's a master key that unlocks 
every door and every chamber, and that's the key of the broken heart. And today, with your simplicity, you were able to open all the doors. And that's exactly why it was the greatest show for blowing ever. And I say this today because typically I prepare for the class and I, uh, I put together some notes and something happened on my laptop with Microsoft Word. It didn't save the file. And uh, two hours before the class, I, I usually print it out and I review it and uh, the paper's not there. I don't, I, don't have the, I don't have the intentions for chapter 12. I don't know. I lost everything and I just spent a couple of minutes before trying to reconstruct something but uh hopefully the keys will open all the doors and uh the right things that need to be said will be said <coughs> and we'll do our best to uh to study the chapter and it actually matches it matches the content of the chapter you know the benoni we're finally getting to the benoni we've been waiting for so long we, we talk about the jewish makeup we've talked about the inspired jew the tzaddik we've talked about the compromised jew the russia who gives in to weakness and now we're in the Benoni. Benoni means the average guy. And so tonight we're just an average guy, and we're going to talk about the average guy, and, uh, and, and, and take the lessons from mediocrity. Take the lessons from uh, not always being the best. It's okay to be in the middle. But before we begin, <coughs> It's important to put it into perspective. Let's, let's remember the imagery of where we're at. Life, as the Alter Rebbe describes it, is an awesome battlefield. There's a city that's invaded by two opposing armies. Each one grabs a stronghold. Each one wants unconditional surrender from the other. This is not about negotiations. There's no UN in this war. This is not about peace treaties or ceasefires. This is about complete and total capture and surrender. We don't want anything less. The person is, of course, the city. The two strongholds are the mind and the heart. The animal soul takes residence in the heart, passions, impulsivities, wants and desires, and just driving us up the wall. The godly soul takes up residence in the mind. He wants to educate, to teach, to transcend, to feel divine, and to be, to be holistic. And uh, each one wants unconditional surrender. There's no, there's no 50-50. There's no, you get the godly soul for half the day, animal soul for the other half of the day. This is going to be a win or lose for each side. And the tzaddik has completely vanquished the animal soul. He's quieted that voice. There is no other voice. We talked about it last week and the week before. He turned on the fire and there's nothing to turn it off. So when the fire is on and the heat is on, that's it. He's in a perpetual state of love of God. The Russia is the other extreme. Not only is he uninspired, but he's allowed, excuse me, he's allowed his weakness to take him over. He's given in to temptation. And uh, in that way, he compromises himself. We talked about two levels of the Russia. One guy who at least compromises, but he has a conscience. But then it can get worse. Where you compromise and there is no conscience. You just don't care. The perfect Russia. And now the pendulum swings back and we're moving on to the Benoni. And the Tanya really is the book 
of the Benoni. It's the Alter Rebbe's second name for it. Sefer Shal Benonim. He calls it the book of the Benoni. The book of the average man. And the word average means that he's got to be in the middle. He's got to be in between the Tzaddik and the Russia. So typically, in conventional Jewish wisdom, and this is how we began the Tanya in chapter 1, typically we understand that the Tzaddik has a majority of sins, a majority of merits, the Russia has the majority of sins, and the Benoni is just a 50-50 guy, you know, half sins, half merits. But that has already been debunked in the first lines of the Tanya. We've, we've left that definition ages ago. The Tanya's definition of Tzaddik Benoni Russia is not in what you do, but in who you are. There's a story that the Alter Rebbe references in chapter one of Tanya, which gives out this very message where Rabbah, great Talmudic sage, was once sitting with his students and he said, you know, we talk about Tzaddik Benoni Russia. I'm a good example of a Benoni told his students, I'm a good example of what it is to be the intermediate man. So his student Abaye said, uh, Rebbe, if you're a Benoni, you don't leave any life for anybody else. If you're the intermediate man, what are we? And the Alter Rebbe posited that what was Rabbi doing? Being self-delusional? If a benoni really means half sins and half merits, how could Rabbi even possibly say that he's a benoni? Righteous people could be humble, but they can't be false. Lying is not humility. Rabbi, we're told in the Talmud, didn't stop learning till the day he died. He never stopped. His mouth never stopped uttering words of Torah. He has half sins. It doesn't make sense. Obviously, the Alter Rebbe led us to understand that a Benoni actually never sins. He never sins. He never loses the battle. And in that way, on the outside, he's just like the Tzaddik. What sets him apart is that he lives the battle. The Tzaddik has no battle. The tzaddik only has one voice that talks. The benani is torn inside. He has temptation. He experiences the struggle. Yet on the outside, he never loses control. And so in the context of the way we described it, the tzaddik being the inspired Jew and the Russia being the compromised Jew, what's the in-between? Not being inspired, but maintaining self-control. That's where the Benoni is at. He's not inspired. He doesn't have that consistent godly feeling. But somehow, some way, he holds on tight. And this, says the Alter Rebbe, is the possible man. This is the hero of the Tanya. This is the potential of every single Jew. We're not asking you to become a tzaddik, to maintain your inspiration perpetually. No, we're not asking you to do that. But we're demanding that you learn the disciplines 
of developing inner character to the point that the battles never get lost and temptation is never given into. And of course the question is how? It's great news. Rabbi Zalman of Liadi, thank you. This is, you've defined our lives. Graphically, really, he's done a great job. Really put us in touch with our inner experience. And then he says, and this is what I want you to be. How? Okay, says the Alter Rebbe. I'm going to write a book for the Benani. Tzadik gets one chapter in the Tanya. Russia gets one chapter in the Tanya. The Benani's got the rest. Really, from chapter 12 until chapter 53. So for the next 15 years of our classes or so, <laughs> right? We'll be, uh, <coughs> we'll be talking about the Benoni because this is where it's at. Is the average man really a Benoni or a Russian? So that's a good question. It doesn't say much The question is, is the average man a Benoni or a Russia? So, of course, average has to be defined. The average man sitting around this table is a Russia. Or better said, a Balchuva. <laughs> okay? We're, we're, we're going to come around, and we'll talk about this in the end of the chapter tonight, about the, uh, the Benoni for a moment. That'll be uh, one of the closing thoughts, the Benoni for the moment. But the reason why the Benoni is called the average man, even though it's not so averagely found, is because, like I said, he's in between. He's in between the two extreme worlds of possibility for, for a Jew. The tzaddik can maintain this height. The Russia descends to this low. The Benoni is in the middle. And it's the possibility of every one of us. So, really, over the next 40 chapters, we're going to be getting the different approaches of Benoni, the different characters, the different styles, the different types, the ups and downs, the experiences. The Benoni is going to get a lot more time. We have to squeeze in a tzaddik and a Russia into one class each. The Benoni is going to really get to be developed. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time tonight on specific techniques, strategies, roadblocks. These are all going to come up in time. Tonight we're going to define the life of a Benoni. Forgetting the specifics. What does every Benoni share in common? If we, could, if we could meet, okay, if we could meet, I was going to say 15 Benonim, but now I'll say five. Okay? If we could meet uh, five Benonim, we would see a theme. <coughs> we would see a theme. And I want to preface with uh, an analogy we've talked about actually two weeks ago. The rich man and the poor man. Today we all have central heating, so we don't know this. But in the olden times, back in Russia, cold winter days meant cold winter days. And you needed a fire. You needed a fire in your home so that everyone could stay warm. 
And if you didn't, you suffered. You suffered, your wife suffered, your kids suffered. And everybody in Russia, let's not make sweeping statements, but for the purposes of our class, everybody in Russia fell into one of two categories, the rich man or the poor man. The rich man is the guy who has a steady supply of firewood. He's got a warehouse, in fact, where he keeps his firewood locked away over the summer so that in the winter he can collect it. It's all dry. It's perfectly cut. There's enough to go around. It never runs out. Every morning, his servant goes to the warehouse, fills up enough for the day with a surplus, just in case, and he brings it in Stuffs in the first couple of logs, gets the fire going in the morning, it's 5.45, the rich man's waking up for shacharis, comes down, has his tea, sits by the fire, is warming himself up. And from that moment on, for the rest of the day, the moment it gets a little chilly, and it seems like one of the pieces of wood is burning out, the servant goes back to the wagon, pulls out another one log or two, sticks it in the fire, and everything's back in order. A couple hours later, it's getting chilly again, boom, another log, and there's, no, there's never an issue. It's a steady supply, the fuel's always there, he never has to worry, it's, it'll always be perfect temperature in the house. Never too hot, he never overloads the fireplace, never too cold. Maintains just the right heat. The poor man, is the unfortunate guy who uh, doesn't have any supply of firewood. He relies on what he collects. He walks around the streets hoping to find a little scrap here, a scrap there, a twig or a branch. Sometimes a rich man gives him a little, a piece. Sometimes what he gets is actually still moist. It's fresh wood off the tree. It's not gonna light as easily. But he makes do with what he has and he has this plan, which is 5.45 in the morning, at the same time that the rich man is putting in his perfect amount of logs and laying them out exactly, he's stuffing in his fireplace with every piece of wood he can get his hands on. He is gonna light up that fire to be so hot so that all the moist wood will have time to dry and so that even as the day wears on and it gets lower and lower power, but at least they'll be able to survive the day. By noon it'll be pretty cold and by evening it'll be already getting very cold and by the time the kids fall asleep, the real cold can set in and then it'll be fine because then they'll wake up and the process starts again. So he's on the extreme. First, he knows he doesn't have enough. He knows he's just going to survive day to day. Second, he finds that his qualitative heat experience also varies. In the morning, he's suffering in the heat. You know, his kids are going, Dad, let's open the windows. And he's going, no, 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 no. If we open the windows now, it'll let in the wind and then the whole thing is going to get ruined. We have to suffer now, so later on it can be fine. So there's a quantitative difference and a qualitative difference. The rich man never lacks for fuel, and because of that, the quality is on 
a very equal wavelength. The poor man lacks for fuel, and so because of that, he needs to invest fully in the morning and hope that it lasts him the day. <coughs> What's the key here? The rich man is the tzaddik, the poor man is the benoni. The tzaddik, it doesn't matter what he does. He can go shopping, he can go to Disneyland, he can go, he can go anywhere. He can go exercising, he can drive a car, he can be in shul, he can study. It's all the same. Because he's killed the Yetzir Hara, so his love of God is always apparent, his passion is always there, he never has to worry that it'll go out. It never affects his life in any way. It's a very peaceful, uh, peaceful ride. The Benini knows he's poor. The Benini knows he doesn't have the fuel to last him the day. He just doesn't have that inspiration. And he knows that if he lets go, he will give in. His temptations are powerful enough that if he doesn't hold on tight, he will find himself crossing that line. He's literally right there. The tug of war is so overpowering that he can't afford to let go for a minute. But how is he going to maintain that consistent level of self-control? So like the poor man, every morning he finds a moment to fully invest. Every morning he finds a moment to fully invest. Not a moment, a good hour. And we call that chakras, davening. The Benoni's key to success is his davening. That's the time when he clears his mind of everything else, all thoughts, everything stops, fully focuses his meditative, intellectual, cognitive, and emotional powers to be fully focused on Hashem. And it's incredibly hot in there, like the poor man's fire. In a way, it might even be hotter than the tzaddik. <laughs> See? It's, it's, it's counterintuitive. Because the tzaddik is on a, is on a constant. The Benoni's davening may be even more passionate than that of a tzaddik. Because that's where he's concentrating every bit of his effort. And he says, if I can get this fire going as intensely every day, that'll provide me with just enough to keep my head afloat the compromising line. The Alter Rebbe talks about a considerable amount of time in the chapter about the, the, uh, the potency of the time of davening, Kabbalistically, not just on the Benoni's part. See, the poor man only has his physical fire. The Benoni also has some godly help because it says, and we say it every morning, When I daven to you, God, it's a time of goodwill. 
the time of davening is a time of goodwill from above. Kabbalistically, it's called it's called mochin de gadlut, the uh, the mature brain. It's a reference to the fact that there's more of a uh, a godly energy that's present in the world for us to open our minds. We're able to gain broader perspective in the morning hours, and uh, because of that, the Benoni's davening experience is actually enhanced. In other words, he's got his work that he's stuffing in his wood into the fire, but Hashem's help is also there for him. And uh, that's what allows him to make it through the day. And the Alter Rebbe says that when, when a Benoni davens, in those moments, the Benoni is tzaddik-like. His, his uh, animal soul, his Yetzir Hara, is quieted <coughs> sufficiently, just as a tzaddik would. And like I said before, even more, even more passionate in a way. But the Benoni never fools himself. He's always honest. Never for a moment thinks that just because I'm feeling the passion now, is it going to last me? He knows very well, as the Halt Rebbe describes, that uh, the Yitzhahara is just sleeping now. He's taking a nap, biding his time till he can pounce. And as soon as those tefillin come off and the talis is wrapped back in the bag, Yitzhahara says, hello, I'm back. <laughs> but, he, but he knows what he's doing. He says, what a great davening that was. He doesn't put it down. What a great davening. <laughs> you know, a good rabbi like you deserves a good breakfast. <laughs> you see, he encourages him. What a bain, like, great, that was great. Let's go have uh, some good shakshuka. <laughs> you know, good bagels and locks. In other words, this, he's right back to it the second it's over. And the Benoni knows that, which is the key to his success. He's aware consistently of where he's at. In davening, he's fully heated. And he's put the Yitzhahara to sleep, but it's only to sleep. It's not slay the dragon. It's only a temporary nap. And as soon as he's ready, he'll pop, pop right, right back up in full force. But his hope is, like the poor man, if I can stack up my fireplace with enough wood, by midday it'll cool down, and then by afternoon it'll be even colder, but I'll keep strong, I'll keep afloat just enough time till I can wrap those pillows on again the next morning and then start again. This is the Benoni's life. He invests himself fully. Everything he's got goes into his davening. It's critical for his survival. And then, the rest of the day, it's just a battle. It's just a battle and it gets harder every second as he gets further from the davening. We all have, I mean, this is something we can all relate to even if we're not living as Benonim, we all have certain moments where something clicked for us, something inspired us, we, we became wholesome with something, with our souls, 
And in those moments of experience, we are flying high, but as we get further, the inspiration is diminished. The further we get from whatever experience that is, the more, the more we get weaker, and that's why we have to keep on plugging in. That's why Shabbos is every week. One of the reasons the Zohar explains why Shabbos is every week is because it keeps us in check. One of the reasons we daven every day keeps us in check. <coughs> so this is it. The Benoni is tzaddik-like in davening. And as soon as he exits the room, as soon as he exits the shul, he's up for the fight. It's a battle. The altar ever gives the imagery, again, going back to the city. With the two, uh, the two armies, he says, during davening, the Benoni is king. After davening, the Benoni is dictator. Hmm. In Hebrew, again, Melech and Mosheel. There's two terminologies for rulership. Melech, kingship. Memshalah, dictatorship. Rulership. What's the difference? Melech, we say in Mairev, in the evening prayers every day, Malchuto, Biratzon, Kiblu Alehim. Key to kingship is willful following of the people. The people want to crown you as king. The people have been enrolled into accepting your authority. Kingship, by definition, means we're engaged. There's a relationship. You want me. I want you. And the positions have been equally decided. A dictator is a bully. He's a bully. He didn't ask the people if they want to appoint him. In many cases, the people don't want him to be in charge. But he exercises his control forcibly and until someone overthrows him. I mean, that's just how it is. On Shabbos, we say, uh, in the Ha'aderet Emuna song, we say, Hamlucha vehamem Hashem has both elements. Elements of a king, elements of a dictator. The Hasidus talks about Hashem is king all year round. He's dictator for only a couple of hours a year. From the night of Rosh Hashanah till we blow the shofar, when God, so to speak, loses interest in the world till we reawaken it with the shofar blowing, that's when he's dictator. He, uh, so to speak, forces the rulership. Once we accept it again from the morning of Rosh Hashanah till the next year, God's the king. But the Benoni says the Alter Rebbe is exactly that. King means enrollment. During davening, everybody's on his side. The mind has educated the heart, has meditative experiences, He's plugged in intellectually. Because of that, it filters down emotionally and everybody's with him. He owns the city fully. For the rest of the day, he's got to be a bully. If he wants to survive, he's got to be a dictator, tough, forcing, non-compromising, non-negotiable. Just make it happen. You want to do it? Too bad. You don't want to do it if it's a good thing? Too bad, we're doing it. He's just forcing. He lives, he feeds off the energy he created during the davening experience. That's what he, you know, he draws the power from there. And whatever remains from his davening, he hopes will last him. And it does last him from day to day. 
But the rest of the day, <coughs> it's the battle, and he's forcibly winning it. So what have we said so far? Two things. Every Benoni shares that they're fully invested in the morning, and every Benoni shares the fact that the rest of the day, they fight and they win with force. With force. What's their technique? Now, we're not getting into specifics of each person's struggle. The Alter Rebbe will address that over the chapters. Different Benoni's struggles. But as a theme, there's one thing which all Benoni's must rely on. And we'll develop it in two parts, as the Alter Rebbe does. Really three, but the third part is going to be next week in chapter 13. So for tonight, it's just two parts. The Zohar says, I don't know the exact Aramaic words of the Zohar, but in translated into Hebrew, Moach Shalit Al Halev. The mind rules the heart. It doesn't say the mind could rule the heart. The mind rules the heart. And because it uses that tense, the mind rules the heart, the Alter Rebbe interprets this statement of the Zohar to mean The mind rules the heart by birth and by its, by its very nature. In other words, the way, elementally, the way we're born is with the mind ruling the heart. And not just the way we're born on the godly side, the way we're born naturally, that means even the animal soul is in this. He's in this idea <coughs> that the mind rules the heart and that the burgers rule the class. <laughs> but this is it. This is the, uh, the basic, this is the baseline. Moach shalit al halev, the mind rules the heart. This is the technique, this is the tool that every Benoni embraces at the beginning of his Benoni hood. And as the Alter Rebbe explains it, what it means is in this world, there's only one thing we can control. One thing. We think we can control everything, but there's one thing we can control, and that is ourselves. Just uh, parenthetically, there's a great, such a powerful insight from the Baal Shem Tov. There's a Mishnah in uh, Pirkei Avot, in chapters of our ethics of our fathers. Thank you. It says, Ezehu Gibor, Hakovesh et Yitzro. Who is strong? He who controls, who masters his inclination, his Yetzer Hara. Says the Baal Shem Tov. Every word in Torah is exact. Why does it say Hakovesh et Yitzro? His inclination. It should say Hakovesh et Hayetzer. He who controls the Yetzer Hara. Why his? Yetzer Hara. 
said that Baal Shem Tov, blessed be his name. It's very easy for people to control other people's Yetzir Hara. Look at him. He lost control. <laughs> that, that, that's his challenge. That's an easy thing. I could have done that in two seconds. Look at him. How does he lose that battle? Can't believe it. I would have, I would have beaten that in no time. It's very easy to control other people's Yetzir Haraz, where other people slip. You can always find their blind spots and see how you would have done better. Who is the strong man? Somebody who controls his battles. His Yetzir Hara. I don't, we don't need advice, you know, from the other guy. Thank you for telling me. I could have done better. Da-da-da-da-da. You fight your battles. Who is the strong man? He who conquers his Yetzir Hara. He who embraces the fact that everybody's got their own package and no two people are the same. Everybody's individual and unique. And if I can control my battle, then I've succeeded. So the one thing we can control is ourselves. The Benoni wants to do that. That's the life he strives to live. He wants to be in full control of himself. So he tunes in to the natural state of his being that the mind rules the heart. And whenever he feels the heart bubbling up, says, go grab that, go do that, don't do that, sleep in, you can, you know, da 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 da. He says, okay, great, I hear you. Let's bring in a second opinion. What does the mind say about this? And the heart says, no, 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 you can't wait, we can't afford to wait, let's go, we gotta give in right now. There's one second, if it's so important, let's have the mind weigh in on this. And of course, the heart knows that it's full strength is an impulsivity. The second you delay it and you allow for some thought, that's when, that's when self-control enters. So the Benoni is always able to access the mind element. <coughs> and it's a natural thing. Remember, the Benoni has never lost a battle, so he's in tune with the natural tendency. Of course, us, you know, we psychologically, we, we've always known, but we know it now even, even on, on, uh, empirically or scientifically has, has acknowledged it as well, we're the sum total of our experiences. So, talking as we have last week, how compromise begets compromise, weakness begets weakness, of course, if you give in once, your tendency is changed. And to get back on track is going to require retrofitting, it's going to require fortification, but the Baironi has never lost. So he always has that purity of the natural state of being. Moach shalit al halev. And so every time he draws on the mind, the mind's influence is exercised and the heart is quieted. It's important that we follow that, that cycle. It doesn't say the Baironi quiets his heart. He always goes through the cycle experiences the temptations. He really does. That's what puts him in our realm. See, the tzaddik doesn't even feel the temptation. The Benoni is the one who is tempted. He has a heart in that sense. In other words, the heart is active. It's vocal. But uh, the, the, uh, the, the brain is then brought in and wins. 
And so we'll, we'll talk about later on in the Tanya, a little bit tonight as well, what do we do? We, we're, you know, we're, we're off the beaten path. We've given in hundreds of times, thousands of times. So we can't say anymore, Moach Shalit al Halev by nature. We would have to get resensitized. We would have to put in a lot of work for that. But by nature, that's how it is. That's key number one, which the Benoni employs to always win. So he fully invests in davening. He's surviving throughout the day with which power? The power of Moach Shalit al Halev. But there's a second power. And I believe this is a uniquely Tanyaic <laughs> thought. <laughs> if, if, we, if that's a word. Okay, Tanyaic. Is that South African? <laughs> <laughs> Tanyaic position. It, it's, it, it's, um, of course, it's, it's Kabbalistic in its source, but the way the Alter Rebbe presents it is unique to him. And he says, Moach Shalit al Halev works for uh, running the extra mile, doing the extra bench press, not eating the cookie. The way it works for Judaism is with an added bonus. Why? Or how? King Solomon says in Kohelet, in Ecclesiastes, he says the following verse, Vera'iti ani, I observed. Solomon, wisest of all men. Observation from Solomon, we want to hear it. What did you observe? Sheyesh yitron min hasichlut, that wisdom, has an advantage over stupidity, kituron ha'or min ha'choshach, like light has an advantage over darkness. King Solomon, guys, I got a declaration. Let me tell you what I've seen. Wisdom is better than stupidity, <laughs> like light is better than darkness. Thank you very much. Profound Genius. insight. Genius. What is the genius here? Wisdom, and it's literally what it says. Small amount Wisdom is better than stupidity. <clears throat> so of course, the key lies in the analogy. See, King Solomon said, he didn't just say wisdom is better than stupidity. He said wisdom is better than stupidity like light is better than darkness. So if we examine the properties of light, the properties of darkness, and the way light exercises its advantage over darkness, we will gain insight into the true relationship of wisdom and stupidity. How does light and darkness work? You walk into a room, it's dark. For the kids, it's scary sometimes. There's unknown boogeyman's, potential possibilities of damage it's dark and you want to bring in the light so you turn on the light switch you ever see the darkness wrestle you know to keep the power yeah I, I didn't think so <laughs> yeah there's no there's no fight you know <laughs> you turn on the light it's just light darkness is a non-entity in the view of the Tani. 
It's a vacuum. It's the absence of light. Introduce the light. And there, there is no darkness. Plus the fact that Gil was saying before, a little bit of light dispels a lot of darkness. In other words, first of all, it's just displaced. Second, even a little bit of light. Says the Alter Rebbe. Wisdom and stupidity in, in, in King Solomon's context is holiness and evil. Mm-hmm. Kedusha and Klippa. Shlomo HaMelech wanted to give us an insight into the Benoni's fight. The Benoni is trying to have holiness supersede and overpower evil. You know what the relationship of Judaism towards non-Judaism is? Holiness to unholiness? It's the relationship of light and darkness. The temptation and the klipa is a non-entity. You're fighting with nothing, says the Alter Rebbe. This is going to be expanded on chapter 29. It's fascinating. You're fighting with your own imagination. The outside physical things that you use Moach Shalat Al-Alev for, those things are wrestling with you. And your brain has to exercise power to win it. When you're fighting the fight of Torah and mitzvahs, the challenges do seem insurmountable. They really do. But you should know, says the Alter Rebbe, and again, the word know is operative because the Benoni operates on the know. He operates on the ability to educate at any given time. So he says, you have to know that you're fighting with stupidity like light fights with darkness. There is no fight. It's, it's a non-thing. And you will see that when you're on the other side. You survive the battle, you look back. The Talmud tells us, when Mashiach comes, the tzaddikim are going to turn around and they're going to say, that was the Yetzir Hara, look at him, he's a here. Hmm. Sorry, he's a, no, he's a mountain, sorry. He's a mountain. How did we overcome him? And the Russians are going to turn around, they're going to say, that's the Yetzir Hara, look at him, he's a here. You know, we couldn't, we couldn't overpower. But the Alter Rebbe says, first, your brain rules the heart. Second, in Judaism, specifically in matters of holiness, you have a bonus that you're fighting a non-fight. It's that great parable of the king who uh, had three sons. And he couldn't determine who's going to be the successor. So he decided to make a challenge. He built three rooms, each of equal size. And he said, I'm giving each of you three days to fill up the rooms to capacity. I don't care what you put in it. Want to put in heaters? Put in Fill up the room with something. Equal dimensions, height, width, and length. And every kid has three days to fill up his room with whatever he wants. And you have a week of preparation, so you don't have to go and if you're gonna fill it up with, with, uh, you know, with chairs, you can, you can pick up your chairs now and have them right outside the room so you can begin on the first day, begin action. So he says, in a week from today, the three-day challenge is gonna start, okay? The first son decided he's filling it up with bricks. Bricks are small, 
but they're concrete, and uh, enough of them will fill up the room. So he orders truckloads of bricks to start showing up outside of his room, and every day more bricks are coming, and he's sweating buckets, he's unloading the bricks, and he's hoping for the, uh, and he's getting, till he, till he really has, he has outside the room, is standing enough bricks to fill up the room. The second son, he said, bricks, I can't carry bricks, it's too heavy, feathers. I'm going to fill up the room with feathers. And uh, it's light. And we'll stuff it in the room. It'll, it'll work. So he's getting his truckloads of feathers. They're coming in and they're loading up bags and bags and bags and bags of feathers. And really, after seven days, it looks like there's going to be enough to, uh, to pack in the room. The third son has been smoking cigars all week. Doing nothing. <laughs> he's doing nothing. He is not ordering any trucks. Nothing's showing up outside of his room. He's just sitting on the bench watching his brothers sweat. And they're going, you know, Jack, he, he, the kingship is in the balance here. What are you doing? You have a magic trick up your sleeve? He's just smiling, relaxing. They couldn't figure it out. But anyways, the seven days end. And now a 72-hour timer is turned on. And it's a man alone. There's no getting helpers. So this guy's going to fill up his room with bricks. This guy's going to fill up the room with feathers. And the third guy, maybe with cigars. He doesn't, we don't know. He, he's sitting there with nothing. Boom, it's Sunday morning. And they're off to work. The first son is schlepping in, schlepping out, schlepping in, schlepping out. Bricks, 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 bricks. But he, he soon realized that the, the room was bigger than he thought. And uh, the bricks were heavier than he thought. So this was not turning out in his favor. After one day, he has barely a quarter of the room full. And then the second day, it just gets harder because it's more weight. And uh, you know, at the end of the second day, he's, he's just barely half full. And uh, the third day, he got another boost of adrenaline and he is trying his best. But lo and behold, at the end of the timer, he was only three quarters full. The second time in the meantime, his feathers, it's easy. So he's dragging in his feathers, dragging in his feathers, and it really seems like it's working. He, 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 uh, he brought it in, and he's filling it up, filling it up, filling it up. And after the end of the third day, the feathers are at the door. They're really there. And uh, he's proudly looking at that, and he closes his door, waiting for the king to come. And the third son, meanwhile, for the whole three days, is doing absolutely nothing, reading a book, eating lunch, and they can't figure it out. And the king himself is watching from the window, and he, he's also like, you know, what is this? My lazy son, I didn't know the mother side of him. Anyway, doesn't say a word. 72 hours are over, and the king is now coming to inspect. Goes to the first son. What do you have for me? He says, Dad, I, I did my best. I, I thought bricks were going to do it. Turns out they were bigger and heavier than I thought. I got to three quarters. Do you want to see my work? Sure, he comes in, but he says, son, you, you, you didn't do it. Sorry, you did a lot of work, but you didn't do it. Second son now is thinking he got the thing, full room. So the king says, okay, what did you do? He says, feathers. Opens the door, and the feathers start coming out. So the king just walks in to the room. And he's pushing the feathers <laughs> as he's going. It, there's no full room here or nothing. The feathers, they, they uh, you know, they compress. It's smaller. They get smaller, so he's just pushing in, and then he calls in his servants to push in more just to show his son, you, you don't even have half a room full here with feathers. 
<coughs> the third son, everybody, all eyes on him. And uh, he says, dear father, dear king, you've seen me. I haven't done anything. I haven't ordered anything. I haven't picked up anything. I haven't moved anything in the past three days. But I want you to come inside and I want you to see what I filled up the room with. Takes his father inside, closes the door, and then strikes a match. And the room was filled with light. The king said, that's my boy. You are the king. Light has that power of dispelling everything. So the Benoni fights knowing that his side is light, the other side is darkness, it's a vacuum, it's absence. And there's a third point we're going to raise next week that Hashem, is, even Hashem personally, is on, uh, is on the Benoni's side. Two final points to close the chapter. Two final points. First is basically a repeat of what I said before, that the Benoni experiences temptation. It's important to realize that. The Benoni experiences the temptation. But the Alter Rebbe says there's three categories of temptation. <coughs> there's temp- and this ties into what we talked about last week, the thoughts of the Avera, so we're going to address that now. Three levels of temptation. Permitted temptation, forbidden temptation, sinful temptation. What are the differences? Permitted temptation means temptations for things that are permitted. There's a lot to enjoy in life without sinning. Really. There's a lot more to enjoy in life with sinning, please. (laughs) (laughs) But there's there's a lot to enjoy in life without sinning. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, If I always get a light moment in, you know, it's good. It's a good thing to laugh. So, (laughs) permitted temptations. The Benoni has permitted temptations. And when the Benoni has permitted temptations, he can actually dwell on them. A Benoni might find himself contemplating how to get a, a temptation, like how the barbecue will look. In other words, he, he might picture these things as long as it's in the realm of permitted things. He won't give in. Why not? It's permitted. Because he knows that one weakness will lead to another. Not because it's forbidden, but because he doesn't want to get into the cycle of weakness. But in the temptation arena, he really gets graphic. Not always, but he allows himself to. Forbidden temptation is the next level. This is temptation to do a sin. Temptation to eat this, to engage in this, to say this, forbidden things. Here, the buck stops a little bit before. He never contemplates doing it. 
he may contemplate the thought. So, the imagery of eating pork. Understand? The imagery of somebody cheating in business or in a marriage. The imagery of the sin, but never vis-a-vis himself, never doing it. Never goes that far. But then, there's a third level. Where the fantasy itself is a sin. Mm. There are certain areas in Torah. Typically, Torah is an action-based Torah. But there are very few areas in, in Jewish law which we're even forbidden to think about. Mm. Idol worship. Every morning in, in uh, Shema, we say, You shall not stray after your hearts. That's taken by Maimonides as a negative commandment against thinking idolatrous thoughts. Hmm. Certain adulterous thoughts, certain, not all, certain immoral relationship thoughts are forbidden even to fantasize. This is the next level. Here, the Benani does zero contemplation. Now, he's not in control of his subconscious, so these thoughts may come to him. But the minute he becomes aware of them, Baal Terba uses the expression, he pushes it away with two hands. The minute he becomes aware of them, he pushes them out of his awareness. So permitted temptations, full contemplation. Forbidden temptations, contemplation, the concept, but never doing it, never as it applies to himself. Forbidden fantasy, never even engage in the fantasy. The Rebbe would talk about this a lot. Hmm. He said people misunderstand the Benoni's method. They think it, pushing away thoughts means actively suppressing it. That never works. Never try diverting your attention from something by thinking about not thinking about it. <laughs> okay? Thinking about not thinking about something will just get you thinking about it more. That's called anxiety. Yes. The process of diverting attention always involves replacing. You have to replace it with something else. The Rebbe would give this advice, actually, to young students who were not trying to be a Benoni. I mean, maybe they were, but they were far from that. But they were just struggling with constant fantasy. And they couldn't, they couldn't control it. And they said, well, it says, they were always right. It says in the Tanya, you're supposed to remove your mind. I try removing my mind, but I, it never works for me. The Rebbe says, removing your mind doesn't mean trying to f- actively remove your mind. It means focus on something else. Do jumping jacks. Say to Hillen. Release energy. Go for a run. run. Go for a run. You, you put your, you, you, once you refocus, the other things will fall away because you know, and you know why, by the way, even psychologically. It, it, the, the temptations aren't standalone. Temptations are, are, are caused by feelings. So if you can, if you can remove, your, if you can recreate a, a new feeling of something else, so the, the feelings will produce new thoughts. It's, it's a natural progress. So, 
Doesn't that kind of go against the head is in charge of the heart? If our feelings produce thoughts, isn't it the other way around? Okay, that's a good question. Um, doesn't, if feelings produce thoughts, what does it mean the mind controls the heart? So you weren't here in the earlier chapters. Well, I might not have been here, but I've been in... But you've been, been in the, been, you, 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 you were somewhere. You were yeah. somewhere. You were somewhere. <laughs> now, a long. <laughs> um, that's a good one. <laughs> Longer than mine, so I don't know. <laughs> what do you water it with? I mean, what is it? <laughs> What's the secret? <laughs> so, the, in chapter three, there's a big there's a big differentiation made between intellectual and cognitive capacity and thoughts. Intellectual and cognitive capacity is the way, the process by which you understand things. Thoughts are a byproduct of that. Many people um, associate understanding and thought. It's, it's a mistake. Thought is a result, is a very uh, external thing. It's called in Tanya a garment. You can constantly change it. You're thinking one thing, you can think something else. The way you understand something is very different. Once you've got wired and, and programmed into understanding something, that is your, your, your mode and perspective until you actively change it. Someone really can deprogram you or re-educate you. These are values. These are... So when we say moach shalat alalev, we don't mean your thoughts overpower your heart. We mean your mind and your cognitive capabilities the way you've molded it. Gotcha. Thoughts are, are the actual thought. Like, uh, let's do this, you know, or, or let's be there. But that's a great, it's a great question that, that needs to be uh, always on our minds. Great distinction. great distinction. Because otherwise people lose it with the thoughts and the understanding, not only here, in, in many other areas. It's like, it's, it, understanding and thought is very, is very different. But that's a, that's a great point. I'm glad you brought it up. So, that's temptations for the Bainani. Three levels. Permitted, he'll engage in the process. Forbidden, contemplate but never doing it. And forbidden fantasy, never even perpetuating the thought. Final point. And the final point's always the hardest. I'll introduce it with a story. The Rebbe once told, you know, the Rebbe would, would talk for hours. We have 11,000 hours of talks of the Rebbe. This is just crazy. Snippets and I'm talking snippets that you can count on your fingers and your toes of times the Rebbe spoke about his personal life. It's extremely rare. And you think such a public figure, we would know about his personal, we know almost nothing, we had to dig. And in all his hours of talks, it was just Torah and the others, never about himself, but very rarely we got insight into some of his experiences as a child. And the Rebbe said, I grew up in the home, one of his talks, I grew up in the home of a rabbi. His father was, Chief Rabbi the Katrinislav, I believe he's like of, of Dnepr Petrovsk, and he was a rabbi on every level. He was a Kabbalist, deep, deep Kabbalist, but also a legal rabbi. I mean, like every rabbi is. And the Rebbe said, I observed my father adjudicate many, many halachic cases. And there was this one thing that always puzzled me. A guy comes into my father's office with a lung of a cow. Butcher, shechted a cow. He's got the lung. There's a shayla. There's a question if it's kosher or not. You know, lung of a cow. It's like a, a microwave. You know what I mean? It's huge. 
maybe a small race car, I don't know. It's like, <coughs> comes along with a cow. Rabbi, is it kosher? Got to examine the adhesions, the different things. My father looks it up and down. Treif. It's not kosher. The guy turns around without a word and throws out $2,000. The whole cow is, is, uh, is treif. He, he loses all the profit. No problem. The next day, this guy comes back with a friend and they're arguing over 50 bucks. 50 bucks, you know, was he cheated? Who's right? And my father says, the other guy is right. <laughs> you owe him the 50. He can't handle it. He can't handle it. There's an appeal. What are you talking about? Da, 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 fighting for the 50. $2,000 yesterday without a word, without a peep. Now, so the rabbi says, I learned a valuable lesson. Nobody minds losing money. But to lose money and it should go to somebody else, <laughs> now that I can't handle. <laughs> it's very easy to be pious with God. It's not that easy to be pious with people. And the final point that the Alter Rebbe makes in chapter 12 is that as wholesome as the Benami is in his relationship with God, he's equally wholesome with his relationship with people. Hatred, grudges, anger, jealousy, money, fights, business, marriage, you name it. All the things. The Benoni fights the fight. The feelings come over him. But the same way he won't miss a day of tefillin. And the same way he'll never engage in the promiscuous relationship. He'll never bear the grudge. He'll never hold the list. He'll never offend. Not only that. <laughs> the Altair, these are the last lines of chapter 12. The Altair says, not only that. He'll actually go to the other extreme. He borrows an expression from the blessing of Hagomel, which we make when, we, when we're released from danger. Hagomel lechayavim tovot. He who gives good to those who are guilty. He learns from Yosef and his brothers, he says. Yosef didn't have an easy life. 17 years old, sold by his own brothers, always, you know, put down in Potiphar's house, subject to this, in jail, subject to that. This guy fooled him, that guy cheated him. He rises to power, he's the viceroy, the brothers come back, he reveals himself to them, and what is he, what's his treatment? It was meant to be. Hashem sent me here to save you guys. He, he, you kidding? You know what these guys did to you? You have all the power in the world. Use it. He was. <coughs> huh? He was using all the power. The other way. Self-control. <laughs> he was gomel lechayavim tovot. The guilty ones actually got good in return. So not only do I have the feelings of the negative relationship and I never act on it, if I feel wronged, if the Benoni feels wronged by somebody, 
he'll repay with goodness. What in position of power? Not in position of goodness. Well, he was, he's, he's not a pushover. <coughs> oh, of course. But he's, yeah, it's always from a place of strength. I don't know, he doesn't have to be the powerful guy. But he'll, he'll never, in other words, there's a, there's a complete wholesomeness. Not, yeah, never, yeah. I, I'm not, you know, I won't kick him, you know, when he's down. I, I have him. Oh, but more. more than that, he actually wronged me. He cheated me out of a million dollars or whatever it is. I'm going to give him, I'm going to give him back good. I'm going to give him back good. Okay, mm. Philip. If you go, if you go there, that's, now that's, that's the bane of me. Yeah. Sounds like a tzaddik. Yeah. 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 We thought we were there. So, what have, so what, have we, uh, what have we learned tonight? Yeah, we're all Rashas. <laughs> <laughs> we thought we were by the name, but we're not. We're all Rashas. <laughs> you know, that's a great line. Rabbi, Rabbi Hillel of Parich, he was the chassid of the third Rebbe of Chabad. He said, before, before I began to learn Tanya, I thought I'm, I'm for sure a tzaddik Imperfect yes. tzaddik, maybe a perfect one. He says, "Now, I say halavai benoni. I wish I could be a benoni." Right. But what have we learned tonight? Any surfers out there? Okay. The benoni rides the waves and survives the crest. Not the crest. Uh? That's good. That's crest. it. I like that. That's it. The crest. the crest. In the morning, is fully empowered. He puts everything he's got in there. And he hopes that the wave will be big enough to take him through until the next morning. What does he use? Brain power, light power. He's fighting nothing. And God's on his side. And he's as wholesome with people as he is with God. Hi. Hi. Hi.